0: my pleasure all right hey everybody jason klom here comedy on vinyl podcast uh, i've been running around uh, but uh matt gorley's with me today thank you for being here man
1: thanks for having me jason
0: um so you picked one of my favorite monty python albums uh it's funny to say that because they're all compilation i don't think they did one original album did they? they i don't think they had no need to i don't think I should Boy. know, right? I'm the host of the show. I'm supposed to know all this stuff. That's
1: a good question. I don't. But I don't know about I that. I don't think so. I mean, they've done so many incarnations of the same material, literally not mm-hmm. even re-recording no, of the yeah. same material, but just putting it all out. Mm-hmm. Especially that this one's called the Final Ripoff, and this was put out in when late a, late eighties. Yeah, it was and their they're last just too. now mounting a show
0: mm-hmm. in the West
1: End in London. Mm-hmm.
0: <laughs> I, they and I'm. I don't. From what I can see, I get the impression again. It's still the same. It's just. The old favorites, yeah, which yeah. is fine, and it works for everybody. But for me, uh, well, at least for me, I, I was always hoping if they did a reunion, be like, hey, here's a bunch of new stuff. But they don't, right. need to. they don't need to. I
1: guess, yeah. Did you hear they're getting pretty skewered by the critics? Really? For this show, yeah. Oh, uh, well, I maybe know there's Terry like,
0: Gilliam was right for tearing them apart. Yeah, house, but he you know, did that, that was years ago. He's like, all I can see is just a bunch of sad old fuckers like in wheelchairs doing comedies. Like I don't want that to happen. Like, so he said why that, did
1: he do it? He just felt obligated. I wanted to the say money, weren't.
0: but he doesn't need the money. Like I know, I know he doesn't. Huh? I mean, it's not like he lost that much on Lost in La Mancha, that I or, or on uh, The Man of La Mancha. I, I could be wrong.
1: I, it always I seems don't. like Eric Idle is the one. Oh, yeah. Following, the, the former <laughs> glory and uh-huh. John Cleese, I think, went through a horrible divorce where he lost a bunch of money. Oh yeah, right. And, uh, like, Michael Palin seems to be doing well. He yeah. has his TV shows. He was always my favorite. I love them all, but, mm-hmm. yeah, that's fascinating.
0: Yeah, I, I can't figure We almost, I was supposed to be on my honeymoon right now.
1: Oh, you're kidding. Well, it's, congratulations. Well, I didn't even know you were you. newly married.
0: Uh, yes, basically. A year ago, five days ago. So a year and five days ago-ish. Uh, no, year and 11. I can't do the math. Anyway, but we were supposed to be in London right now, and we were going to have tickets tickets. See the show. Oh, Did, man, I'm just bummed because you know that's the, you know it's the last time. Yeah, this is the last time.
1: You know what? <laughs> I, I bet mean, you there'll be at least three more. Yeah, you maybe you're right. The way it's going. You're, you're
0: right. And the thing is, yeah. they make enough jokes out of when one of them dies that like mm-hmm. if one of them croaks, it'll still be okay. If Much Eric Idle is the
1: them, last one left alive, that would be Monty Python. Oh yeah, chosen, no, absolutely, so,
0: yeah. absolutely. Um, so I mean, this is like I don't think there's another. Not that I can think of another two uh, two disc. Or two record album of theirs. So you know, I'm remember.
1: not sure. In fact, this was really the only Monty Python album I had. So mm-hmm. it had so much stuff on it. I would look at other. Oh, you know what? I had their like complete work CD. Oh,
0: okay, yeah. Thing, but that's a good one.
1: This one was the one I just listened to, back to front, back to front, over and over and but over. But it's again.
0: so long. That's the other thing, though. Is like it's long. It's just, there's just a lot of comedy. Yeah. Like it's risky making a two disc set of comedy ever. Right. But it just keeps you. Yeah. Like you
1: know what the other album I considered for this podcast was uh-huh. a two disc set as well. Uh-huh. So don't judge me but <laughs> when I was just a young man and like freshman in high school mm-hmm. I wore out the Andrew Dice Clay double album. Really? and oh my god i look back at it now it's a crazy but that in itself is worth discussing sometime just cuz it's oh, absolutely such absolutely it is yeah but this is the one that i listened to the most by far and learned so much from
0: was what did what had you seen or heard of Monty python before how early were you exposed to that?
1: i was exposed at a pretty young age to the flying circus show through pbs and actually i have these great very um middle american sort of conservative parents but okay. They also were really into Monty Python, awesome. so I don't know how that worked exactly. So we would watch those shows, and then right around high school, I saw Holy Grail and Life of Brian and was like, oh my God, I would go home from parties just by myself and watch. I would buy the VHS and just watch it over and over. I think like every young man in a certain like demographic, mm-hmm. <laughs> like comedy demographic, goes through this rite of passage where you just live and breathe monty python yeah. and you re- you recite it like cult-like yeah. levels right and uh i went through that i think anywhere from late high school to early college yeah and this is the album i i would drive i drove from a house in whittier to college in long beach i commuted and put this on a disc man and would listen with headphones while i drove every day <laughs> holy shit i loved it
0: i mean it is kind of it's it's the same way uh a musician practices an instrument uh and they learn their favorite songs yeah so what's a comedian going to do if they don't have a chance to get up on stage yet or don't right. know that that's a thing you can do right you're going to just keep repeating it, it teaches you rhythm it teaches you joke structure yeah but you absorb it you do but you,
1: unfortunately you also regurgitate yes, it. So you and do. i remember where i worked I would recite these over and over, and I must have been insufferable. Like, I—in fact, I look back now and remember how the people were looking at me, and it clicked so easily that they were at their wit's end with me. But at the time, <laughs> even though I still know what their face looks like, uh, it didn't register wrapped, at the time. Right? Or just like they don't get it, you know? Like, <laughs> yeah. there's something. Yeah, like this is—I'm—I've got one on that over on them, and no, they were right.
0: <laughs> I, my God, like. Uh, I'm trying to think so did you so you own you own the movies you own this album uh is there a favorite bit on the album for you absolutely okay Uh, far
1: and away and i don't know why it's Mm -hmm. eric the (laughs) halfaby and the eric the halfaby song (laughs) i would sing it over and over and i learned so much from this too i always say that i learned more from from uh, monty python crosswords and Looney Tunes than I ever did from school because sure. they filled me with these references yeah. that I had no idea what they meant. And right. then just you inevitably come across the meaning of them at some point in your life and mm-hmm. then you go, ding, that's what that is. Yeah. And like Monty Python and crosswords were like a series of fill in the blanks ready to be filled throughout yeah. life. Even when I was a kid watching Looney Tunes and, you know, I would do like a Clark Gable impression and my Mom will go. How do you know who that is? And I'm like, I don't know. Bugs Bunny does. And then you see Clark Gable, and you go, Okay, that's what that means. That's what that is. Uh-huh. And with Monty Python, it's like, Who's Cyril Connolly? <laughs> Who's Enoch Powell? Uh-huh. Who are these people? And then you somehow you learn it. Otherwise, you probably never would have noticed when they come on your radar. Right. But when right. you when you've got it ingrained in you in such a way that it it just can't help but click into place. There's like a, yeah. I've got these little open cubbies for all these British references that uh-huh. I think are 90% filled at this point but there's always still one I'll always come across one where I can go god that's what that is <laughs> and I and so much so that I didn't even know what they were literally didn't know the word or person they were saying like it uh-huh. sounded
0: like a different thing mm-hmm.
1: then I hear the real thing and go oh that's what that is. yeah yeah so, yeah.
0: yeah I, no, I think I've, I've done that a lot I mean being obsessed I uh, this has well it's not the only thing but I mean it's one of the many things that's gotten me obsessed with, with England. I, I mean, I was I was born there, and that was one of the no. th- like. I only lived there for a year and a half, so I even though I'm a, a dual citizen, I'm hardly English. But it's one of those things when you're a little nerd, you're like, I've got one thing. I belong there. You have like, dual I citizenship. I yeah, I do. Cool. I yeah. Like the, I'm one of the last like few years where you could actually still be a dual citizen. I'm
1: of that nerd class where I'm a little jealous. Yeah.
0: <laughs> see, see, if yeah. I had only known you growing up, because everybody else was like, every time it was like the class is going to say something interesting. I, I would say that and nobody gave a shit. And I honestly thought so. That that whole time I was like, well, you know what? The English the English people will get me when I go there, <laughs> and of course that's where where we're planning a honeymoon at some point. Oh, but the, you yeah. know, um, so it, yeah. The I but I don't understand what these bunch of Oxbridge guys. I don't know how they relate to other nerds so well. And, I mean, they grew up in a hard life. I mean, just post-World yeah. World War II. So right. maybe that's got something to do with it. But I wonder. what Was it just the absurdity that you latched onto as a kid? Or that was, was a big else? part of uh, it. Right.
1: Um, yeah, and I had an, a natural love for absurdity from a small child i remember i used to do this thing with my neighbor my best friend was this girl named kelly Mm -hmm. next door and she had a pool and we used to do this thing called wacky Wokos, where we would jump into the pool and right when we're about to jump in shout something weird like pencil fight (laughs) or like tree killer or whatever it was total non-sequitur and then we had to physically act out what that was as we're jumping into the pool and it like it never, because you're when you're that young, mm-hmm. nothing is absurd. It's Mm-mm. just you do what you do. Mm-hmm. And then when I hit like high school and college, I found I was doing that kind of humor for me and my friends that would never translate in like a mainstream <laughs> way or on a stage way. Right. But then it started informing my comedy and my personality and mm-hmm. learning that like if you can get an audience to know you quickly enough, yeah. they will then accept the weird things. So it's a it's a fine balance. And I thought Monty Python always did such an amazing job of absurd, smart body mm-hmm. and, like, the, the way they
2: could get away with every type of humour was so impressive to me. Yeah. Are you embarrassed easily? I am. But it's nothing to worry about. It's all part of growing up and being British. This course is designed to eliminate embarrassment, to enable you to talk freely about rude objects, to look at awkward and embarrassing things, and to point at people's privates. The course has been designed by Dr. Carl Gruber of the Institute of Going a Bit Red in Helsinki. Here, he himself introduces the course. Hello, my name is Carl Gruber. Thank you for inviting me into your home. My method is the result of six years' work here at the Institute in which subjects were exposed to simulated embarrassment predicaments over a prolonged fart Period. Time! Sorry. Lesson one. Words. Do any of these
3: words embarrass you? Shoe. Megaphone. Grunties. Now let's go on to something ruder. Wankel Rotary Engine.
2: Now lesson two, noises. Noises are a major embarrassment source. Even words like tits, winkle, and vibraphone cannot rival the embarrassment potential of sound.
0: Was it ever... Do you know... Uh, it, it had to have informed... I mean, you edit... We should just point out, obviously, Macro su- super ego. But you edit the show, right? Yes. So <laughs> this had to have informed you so- in some way, right? Because it's... Uh, you, you have one of the few, like... One of the few podcasts that's that produced. Uh-huh. And there's not a lot of sketch comedy in history that is as well produced as this and maybe Cheech and Chong and maybe one or two others. Oh, thank you. You know what I mean? Like, can you... Is, did it, is there something about this, like the environmental... Like the environment of it that, I mean, did, did that inform how you it? Absolutely.
1: And I didn't even realize it, I think, because early on with Super Ego, we started doing it with the, not only the um, assumption, but the total belief that nobody was listening. And we were right. <laughs> mm-hmm. And so we were free to be as weird as we wanted mm-hmm. to. And then as our audience grew, we didn't have to change anything. They came to us for that reason. So mm-hmm. it didn't feel like, oh, now we have an audience. So we got to, we should be more conscious of it. If anything, it strengthened it. And then, so the production on the first go around of Super Ego, that season one, for lack of a better term,
0: mm-hmm.
1: was pretty simple. And then it just got more and more fun to create the world. But then I did think back to this very album. There's such environment. Like, I remember, this is the first time I was ever conscious of stereo Mm. in comedy yeah 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 and they use a lot of of stereo footsteps going off right and left <laughs> music from the right and the left yeah and like it cre- it really created theater of the mind for me yeah so much so that i remember even in the i think it's the cheese sketch yeah there's a point when the cheese vendor's going like he's trying to look if he has some some si- sort of cheese and he goes mm. and he's trying he's just making that hum and i thought oh, that's the sound of like a cheese waiter coming up right now. <laughs> and it never occurred to me that was just a voice. And it, that theater of the mind was so that's strong so good. that it had to inform Super Ego more than I even... Yeah. I mean, I'm consciously aware of it, but I bet mm-hmm. it's way more than that. Yeah. Definitely. Yeah, people always compare us to Firesign Theater, but none of us were really listeners of Firesign mm-hmm. Theater. And so I think that since I do the editing, the, yeah. this naturally came from this very album.
0: Well, it's a great comparison, if only because Firesign Theater, I mean, they're... I have admittedly la- I've admitted on this podcast several times. I was exposed to them way too late, but they were the American Monty Python. Yeah. Just because they were American that made them not counterculture enough for even the nerds, for <laughs> right. a lot of nerds, you know what I mean? But yeah. so now you can cut, we can come back around and be like, you know, you guys are American. So that's immediately, they're going to draw the, I think the fire sign re- yeah. similarities first. Um, But yeah, no, I'm yeah. I have you listened to fire sign since?
1: Uh huh. We yeah. all have. And, uh, I, I guess I see it uh, mm-hmm. in some sense, but I still feel, not that we're at Monty Python's level, but mm-hmm. I feel like our emulation is is more pointed towards Monty Python yeah. than Firesign.
0: No, definitely. You know? uh, <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm just. I, I'm now thinking of some of your sketches, and you know, you, you try and you sort of compare. But the the other thing that is different is that you guys are. This is what upset me when I first listened to your podcast. I'm listening to it halfway through the first time I I listen to an episode. I'm like, is this is this improvised? Is it? And then I immediately found out and said, "Fuck you to the world." But like I, but yeah, but how long are these sessions? How long do we cheat for? a lot? It's yeah, not, it's
1: not that we cheat on our. Imp- improvisation I mean mm-hmm. we truly do improvise it but we go longer obviously longer sure. than the sketches end up being so for a 5 minute sketch we'll go 10 or 15 minutes mm-hmm. but a lot of that is like I said we were talking about I think before this podcast turned on like our environment of recording is a car may drive by or a helicopter or mm-hmm. the floor creaks or our stupid cat meows <laughs> and so we go oh say that again or if somebody laughs yeah. I mean there are laughs that are kept in for superego but they're usually yeah. because like two reasons either I couldn't cut around it like something was too important underneath or the laugh was underneath something too important Mm -hmm. or sometimes I'll leave one in if it's the end of a sketch like a nice button Mm -hmm. but otherwise if if people laugh and I have this horrible thing where my laugh I try to stifle it and I (laughs) go and that (laughs) gets in the way so much in the editing So I'll be conscious of that. And Mark of Super Ego is really good at that too. Like we'll both be listening, going, oh, say that again. We need it cleaner. Mm -hmm. And we don't stop momentum. So like without thinking, everybody just does it again. And then we keep moving on. So we fell into a nice rhythm. But yeah, we, we cheat. By the time it's all tightened and produced with sound effects and stuff, it makes the improv sound probably a lot sharper than it is. Well, sure. No, yeah. of
0: course. That's that's bound to happen. Did you, as a kid, did you make friends over comedy at all? Did you share oh. stuff and, and like, oh, you're my friend now? Yeah, actually. Because Monty uh, Python sort of does that. Yeah.
1: It? I'm trying to think. Not when I was young, young, but my best friend growing up was Jeff Davis. He's He's been on Super Ego a bunch of times. Mm-hmm. He's on Whose Line Is It Anyway? And we grew up together in Whittier, and we were the first to really bond over improv. So I started comedy sports, which was like a high school yeah. improv team at my high school, and then got him to come do it with us. And we just ate up improv. Mm-hmm. And, and for us, it was like, kind of like how I imagine cooler or tougher high school kids get into drugs or drinking. <laughs> because for us, it was, you do improv and you get this like high of an audience reaction. Plus you go to other schools and do it. So there was like a girl factor of you know, go see these other girls. and. It was like uh, we we had no need for drugs or alcohol because, first of all, we were just not very cool. <laughs> but it it was, yeah, he was my comedy buddy for sure.
0: Yeah. yeah. That's awesome. Did you share? Uh, well, that's actually the, the interesting thing is like I, I know I grew up like improvising because I didn't know how to write sketches. But I'm wondering what. When did you learn that improv was a thing? Growing up, I didn't know that improv was a yeah. thing, if that makes sense.
1: I didn't either. I remember watching Comic Relief one time, and George went, was in the scene. I think it was like a Second City improv scene. Mm-hmm. Mm. And I could not wrap my head around it. I'm like, why is this not funny? I don't understand okay. what this is. What's <laughs> yeah. going on? Yeah. And it wasn't until later I looked back and, oh, that's that was an improv scene. Mm-hmm. And it just didn't hit. You yeah. know? Um, I think I was in eighth grade and a high school theater group came to my junior high to recruit like if you want to do theater when you come to high school here's Mm -hmm. what you'll do and they did like a monologue a song and then a group did an improv scene okay oh my god (laughs) that's everything because i was putting on stunt shows in my backyard when i was a kid and (laughs) always trying to blow things up and and just play and the biggest thing i used to do with my friend kelly again is we would get a tape recorder an audio tape recorder Mm -hmm. and um just record like newscasts and commercials yes, of course and that's what super ego really came from was because jeremy and i were doing these like uh video shorts for channel 101 and they were really fun but they were super time consuming and expensive mm-hmm. and the visual side of it made it the production way too lavish yeah so we i, I once podcast came along I, I said we should do this thing because we don't like the budget can be nothing right and we, and the, and we can like go sky's the limit with what we want to do conceptually yeah and so uh that boy I f- i've i t- t- Spoken in such uh, a maze that I don't remember what their initial question was.
0: <laughs> uh, and I am that kind of guy that I don't remember what my question was either. I don't remember. But I did have a follow-up. Yes, good. And the follow-up is, first of all, I'm kind of... I always get upset with myself for, A, not knowing like that incredibly famous producer, Lou Adler, did Cheech and Chong. I don't know who I, produced... I didn't know that. Monty, yeah, I don't know who produced this album or any of their stuff. And I'm just wondering... <laughs> I want to think for purity's sake that they didn't gather catalog sound effects, but they probably did. I'm wondering what you guys do. Do you make your own stuff? Do you foley stuff? A little of what? both. Yeah.
1: Yeah. We, it depends on what it is. I've found this website that I go to that has so many sound effects. Mm-hmm. And if I can't find it from there, I'll foley it. Sometimes it's like so specific that you have to. Yeah. Um, but it's amazing, too, how creative you can get where one thing can stand in for another. Mm-hmm. And how sometimes when I go to this site to get the, literally the sound effect I need, it doesn't sound right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I'm trying to think of the weirdest thing I've had to do. I remember there's a sketch where Jeremy plays Ian McKellen giving a guy a bath. <laughs> and this was before I had found that website. So we were pretty uh-huh. much foleying everything by hand. So I set up a mic in my bathroom and I took a bath and I just moved around, got in and out, you know, just naked, uh, fully art. Oh my god. <laughs> what else? There was some other weird thing. I think Oh <laughs> this is weird, but we do live super ego sometimes, and I have this character I've never been able to do, but he's like a stand up comedy character whose catchphrase is send it into readers digest. <laughs> and so at Sketchfest last year i finally took a break from our live show like right in the middle of the show and i said okay everybody i need everybody to yell the whole crowd to yell send it in to reader's digest like this <laughs> comedian is so well known that his audience just yells it out every time and it sounded so amazing they were like i don't know two three hundred people yeah. yelling that out and uh unfortunately the sound recording on oh. that on that one didn't do so well. No, but no, I have to no. go by and there were so many people yelling that part may be fine, but the rest of the yeah. audience recording is not so good. <laughs> um, but that getting back to that album, mm-hmm. the, the production on it is really good. And the music yes. is amazing. And yeah. I, I'm wondering too, cause I know Eric Idle is a really talented sure. musician, sure. but they must've maybe had, like proper session musicians come in and play I some of that stuff.
0: so. I mean, they've done some pretty lavish bits on, like, Monty Python sings, like we were discussing yeah. earlier. Like, there's some giant orchestral things that weren't just for the movies. Right. They'd, I mean, Oliver Cromwell seems like it's had a lot of... But Which, by the way, helped me pass a test, that song, Oliver Oh, Cromwell. really? <laughs> yes.
2: A lot of people in this country poo-poo Australian table wines. This is a pity, as many fine Australian wines appeal not only to the Australian palate, but also to the cognoscente of Great Britain. Blackstone Bordeaux is rightly praised as a peppermint-flavoured burgundy, whilst a good Sydney syrup can rank with any of the world's best sugary wines. Chateau Bleu, too, has won many prizes, not least for its taste and its lingering afterburn. Old Smoky 1968 has been compared favourably to a Welsh claret, whilst the Australian Wino Society thoroughly recommend a 1970 Cote du Rod Laver which, believe me, has a kick on it like a mule. Eight bottles of this and you're really finished. At the opening of the Sydney Bridge Club, they were fishing them out of the main series every half an hour. Of the sparkling wines, the most famous is Perth Pink. This is a bottle with a message in, and the message is, beware. This is not a wine for drinking. This is a wine for laying down and avoiding.
0: Oh, that was the question. OK, what I was asking you earlier about improv was how did you know improv was a thing, but then you you sort of... You oh, yeah. It. You, but... At that point, I mean, what I what's always hard for me is like because I feel like doing I don't know what is the harder to do on stage, but I feel like sketch is a little uh, a little easier to do if only because you've at least you you it's not necessarily you you can always blame it on the script <laughs> uh, okay. stand up you can you're you you have something else to blame, <laughs> but then as an improv group you can't go blame other people you've got all you're supposed to work together as a team yeah so. I, I just feel like improv would it would definitely have beaten me up if I'd have tried to keep doing it. So I'm just wondering what
1: I think I somehow see it the other way, because mm-hmm. I think the audience understands that it's being made up. So they're willing to forgive more. OK. And yeah. knowing that and then just going with more left field choices. Jeremy and I talk about this in Mark, too, to a certain extent, like since we've started doing Super Ego, We've had our various trips back to normal improv, mm-hmm. mainstream improv, and we haven't been that good at it because our inclination now is to go so absurd that it just doesn't suit the scene or right. the poor people we're with are like, but we need to you know, establish a who, what, and where. Yeah, and yeah. you can't say no in an improv scene because all we do in Super Ego is say no to each uh-huh. other because we love screwing with each other and we trust that whoever the crazy character is saying no over and over, that the straight man at the time is going to keep fueling mm-hmm. them as it yeah. were otherwise it would just shut down a scene yeah but, yeah so we're not so good at regular <laughs> improv anymore <laughs>
0: but that's i don't know to me that's kind of a positive thing and it's just punk as you're gonna get an improv <laughs> is to keep saying no yeah
1: well Even we don't f- do it like on no, principle but sure it's just so much more fun but
0: being willing to i mean there are people who get afraid of it and then yeah. improv is not no longer a tool right so the other the hard part is that improv is a tool and it's it, and it becomes difficult using that as its own presentation Uh and that's why i've seen a lot of improv that i've hated i love improv and i love to do it. i'm with you but there's a lot of it that fucking sucks
1: i can't i really can't you know go do it much and i I teach theater and i teach improv yeah and i i you'll be hard-pressed to get me out to an improv show or a theater show and it's nothing against the people doing it it's just yeah you know
0: it's an experiment, and it's like, it would, I don't know, it would be like, watch. It'd be like following one improv group would be like eating everything a cook makes from the time they're an apprentice. <laughs> you know what I mean? Sampling yeah. a little bit. It's like, oh, yeah. okay, I can't wait till next week, buddy. Like, right. you know, a nice smile on your face. So it becomes rough. And again, it's not to shit on the form, because again, I love improv. Yeah. But it's, it's rough. And, and again, it's, it's everywhere
1: now, too. It is. And that's part of the problem. Mm-hmm. I mean, it really is something everybody's doing, and... Uh, the market's flooded a little bit, I think, mm-hmm. yeah.
0: Do you, I mean, uh, do you use any of your Im- improv stuff to, I mean, uh, as far as scripted stuff? Does it ever develop into scripted stuff that you use
1: uh, Um, I don't know that it has, because I'm kind of like you. I, I don't really do sketch comedy. I'm mm-hmm. horrible at writing sketches. Okay. I think I, I, there's this thing we always talk about with Super Ego, too, because all of our stuff is basically character-based. Mm-hmm premise comic premise sketches confound us and we don't care for them that much. I think Mm -hmm. because it's hard, it's harder to be funnier than the comic premise joke. Once that joke is revealed, I think that's why for so long Saturday night live sketches couldn't end well because they Mm -hmm. could never top their initial reveal, you know? Right. And so if you don't have a good character to sustain it, then you're kind of dead in the water. And so um, I'll come up with premise ideas And we'll even pitch them for Super Ego, but we always ultimately end up going, if it doesn't have a character, how can it work? And we've done a few and they just, you know, they've Mm -hmm. made it on the like bonus episodes or something Mm -hmm. like white collar comedy tour. See, right there.
0: Wait, can you tell me how that goes? Because I wrote that exact same gag years ago. and Oh, really? You did it. That's hilarious. You you must have done it years uh, before I I did it, but how did it go?
1: (laughs) I think, but that's the other problem with premise jokes though, is you're they're in the zeitgeist and they're they're mm, going to come out that's exactly up. Yeah. why i gave up on yeah, it yeah. like
0: i'm i'm mostly a sketch writer but i mean i have that exact problem is that if i don't find the character i get bored writing it right yeah you know well I mean, that probably
1: means you write some pretty good sketches i would bet
0: listen to the 100th episode and you might argue otherwise <laughs> <laughs> we play well to be fair that album is 15 years old and it's not not anybody's best work but it is a lot of fun um wow um, it's just, it's, now you're just making me think a little further about, um, sorry. Anyway, it's right. um, so, all right. So this album, you listen to it in your car over and over and yeah. over and over again. Did you, I mean, did, did you buy any of their other albums afterwards or only, is this just your thing?
1: The only thing I ever got was that compilation of like six or eight CDs that came in a long thin cardboard box that oh. was like two inches tall. Mm-hmm. And it had basically everything from every album. Mm-hmm. But I never really listened to that because it did feel like too much. And there wasn't one album I could pull out that had all this great stuff mm-hmm. where either of those two... It was like the Beatles' White Album from... The final ripoff was like the Beatles' White mm-hmm. Album because either one was so rich. Yeah. And uh, honestly, though, I would just always start with Eric the Bee. I loved that it's song. It's so good. And yeah. the
0: sketch leading up to it is fantastic yeah
1: it's the best so i was listening to this album today and i'm trying to think of what else stuck out to me it's weird because it has scenes from the movies on there Mm -hmm. and stuff just taken straight from the movies i mean they really are just gutting you for cash yeah no of course of course but they've never been shy about admitting that no um i like there's a lot of things on here that I didn't know where they came from. Like, I had never seen them on Flying Circus, though. I'm sure they came from there. Like, Spanish Inquisition, I later saw on there, mm-hmm. but I love that one. The Cheese Shop one. There's one in the bookstore where they start spoonerizing all the titles of the books. That I mean, that's where I learned what spoonerisms were. Uh-huh. And then I became addicted to doing that with just everything I saw on the street, spoonerizing mm. everything. Because I also have a theory that that's the only way you can ever truly make yourself laugh is because you can literally spoonerize two words and do it before you get the meaning and sometime you're going to spoonerize something that has a a double meaning and you can surprise yourself otherwise every joke you think of you're thinking of it along with your brain if Uh that makes sense and you can't surprise yourself that's a good point that's
0: pretty brilliant (laughs) um the other thing too though about this album is that it's also filled with like it's, and this is something that I stole a lot in my early writing and probably still do on occasion, is just shop sketches. Like that's the yeah. thing they do. Yeah. Shop sketches mixed with lists. Like here's a list, here's yeah. a shop, and they can but they can right. still pull so much out of it. And I don't and it, maybe it is the characters. But it's yeah. still just customer and and right. shopkeep.
1: Their their thing is a perfect mix uh, mix of of good writing, absurdity characters but also like they have a musicality there's almost like a shakespearean meter or something to what they do that even aside from the songs you take it away and you you not only quote it but you quote it just like they do of course even if you're not doing the accent you're still hitting the same rhythm and they're just all so inherently brilliant at comedic rhythm and timing that i think i had to have learned something from that whether i even know it or not you know
0: and then the production on top of it is like there's bits in, <clears throat> sorry, in cheese shop too. We can barely hear, a uh, Michael Palin in the one channel. Uh-huh. Like he's just, blah, 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 blah. and then you all see the hmm, mm, yeah hmm, yeah the, the, like you said like, it's that adds a whole, uh, an additional level to to yeah. appreciating it yeah. anyway because you have to listen, you yeah. Know? Whereas on on TV they had, you had to yell every line you had to do this you had to do that <laughs> and the album like is, this is like a, a whole experience yeah. Do you I mean I I mean I've heard you guys play with that kind of stuff in your podcast but have you ever thought about if we were to take all how many episodes have you done <laughs>
1: uh three seasons of about 15 episodes a piece so 45 episodes at let's say five sketches an episode yeah. average what is that Jesus 200, 200 and some 225 sketches, yeah 225 sketches
0: so have you thought about if we had if I had to do a traditional comedy album which ones I would chop it down to have you ever thought about it
1: well i think there are some obvious choices only because i think at the end of season three we put it out on the internet with a little poll of what do you want to hear on the best of okay and it was amazing how uniform people were and really? what they really liked okay. in okay. fact uh i have a batch of things that i'm trying to figure out what's funny right now and i put it out to some trusted friends and mm-hmm. they like they always come back consistent it's interesting how that happens i mean there's always some outliers but sure you end up getting a clear favorite yeah. Few that that makes me conf- either confirms or denies what I thought, but usually confirms. Thank God, so it's it's nice to have that because I'm I'm losing all objectivity on what's funny with super ego no, anymore. I bet I <laughs> <Can't> bet. Tell, <laughs> yeah.
0: Do you what is it? T- does it teach you something about your comedy about what works though?
1: Uh-huh. Uh huh. Definitely, I think the thing that I most easily forget, but would do well to remember, is that time spent editing doesn't mean. The sketch gets better, sure, necessarily. Yeah, that's hard. like you can really augment something with editing, but you can also just dress up a pig, mm-hmm. you know. And I found that with one of these sketches that I thought I put so much time and I actually really liked the editing work that came out, but I don't know that the sketch is really there, okay. So I learned that that one's probably gonna stay behind, mm-hmm.
2: you know. Rex Stardust, lead electric triangle with Toad the Wet Sprocket, has had to have an elbow removed following their recent successful worldwide tour of Finland. Flamboyant, ambidextrous Rex apparently fell off the back of a motorcycle. Fell off the back of a motorcyclist, most likely, quipped ace drummer Jumbo McLooney on hearing of the accident. Plans are already afoot for a major tour of Iceland. Divorced after only eight minutes, popular television singing star Charisma changed her mind on the way out of the registry office when she realised she had married one of the donkeys by mistake. The evening before, in L.A.'s glittering night spot, The Abattoir, she had proposed to drummer Reg Abbott of Blind Drunk, after a whirlwind romance and a knee trembler. But when the hangover lifted, it was Keith Sly of the Donkeys who was on her arm in the registry office. Keith, who was too ill to notice, remained unsteady during the short ceremony, and when asked to exchange vows, began to recite names and addresses of people who also used the stuff. Charisma spotted the error as Keith was being carried into the wedding ambulance and became emotionally upset. However, the mistake was soon cleared up and she stayed long enough to consummate their divorce.
0: Is it do you think it's uh one thing about money python that's all uh, you know they're legendary for their fights but still sticking together. As, I feel like as an improv group that's got to be le- less I mean there's not as much pressure of course you guys are not you know you guys don't have a show on the BBC each week. Right. But even without that pressure I feel like it's it's Because you have to cooperate to do improv. I mean, it's it's got to be a different because you're not fighting to get an idea in. You're just you have to talk over the next person (laughs) who really wanted to do that and that would kill the sketch. I'm just I'm just curious. uh, Is there any conflict in in, in anything? You know, it's funny.
1: Like creatively, we. I can't even think of any real conflict we've no. had because even if someone has an idea that we're not all on board for and all of us have had those, mm-hmm. we'll give it a shot. Yeah. And it, who, there's been times when that's like, wow, I was wrong. That's a great idea. Mm-hmm. But most of the time, those ideas that n- the rest of the group doesn't believe in don't don't get edited because we all kind of, we got it out and we went, eh, it didn't really work. Okay. But we, we never have major conflict. We'll have meetings sometimes where we need to like, like deal with our work relationship where, mm-hmm. you know, or just like dependability and, you know, cause all of us at different times have different things going on. So, you know, some people will be more flaky than others. Some people will be too like wanting to do too much. You know, mm-hmm. we all have sinned on that level. So yeah, we've had a, uh, I think maybe two or three meetings and they always, to everybody's credit always goes well nobody like everybody's like okay yeah I get it you Mm -hmm. know and um, so yeah no complaints I I mean our personalities since we've started have probably branched further apart Mm -hmm. and we don't tend to hang out as much anymore which is always a, a bit of a bummer but we still, when we turn on the mics, though, I, I, I honestly feel like no time has passed, and I'm so happy about that. That's I think awesome. if that wasn't... We can withstand these ebbs and flows of our hanging out periods mm-hmm. and, and our work ethics and stuff like that, but if if when we turn on the mics we weren't what we used to be, I think then we probably wouldn't be doing it anymore. And I think yeah. we considered, you know, for a while there, I was just so tired of editing that like, I either needed a really long break or... Maybe it was time to wrap it up and do some specials in the future. But mm-hmm. but without saying too much, I don't think that's going to happen. That's <laughs> no. good.
0: That is good. Um, did you ever listen to much stand-up, Mike? Or was it mostly sketch for you? Or-
1: um, yeah, I, I certainly remember the huge stand-up boom in the
0: 80s. Mm-hmm. I mean, you said Dice. You had-
1: yeah, Andrew Dice Clay was one I'm afraid to admit that I... <laughs> I had another friend that really influenced me on that level. And whether that's a good influence or not, I think you could argue. Mm-hmm. Um, but he was also for better, or for worse. He was really quotable. Yeah. And so I listened to that. Um, boy, I don't know that I ever did. Cause it's weird. I only had cable at my dad's growing up. So most of the time I didn't really have cable. So there wasn't a huge stand up outlet mm-hmm. for a young guy. Yeah. Um, yeah i think that's it now carson was another story i was uh-huh. pretty much obsessed with johnny carson really yeah just i just loved his personality but i it, it didn't hit me until a few years ago i think he's probably my biggest influence for something like Super Ego because he would do these in his heyday he would do these sketches where he would play someone and ed would straight man him but they mm-hmm. could break and improvise yeah and it was always a crazy character and I just, I just always had a smile on my face when I was watching those. So I think actually Monty Python and. And Johnny Carson were probably my biggest influences, for Super Ego at least.
0: That's kind of awesome. I i, I have yet to have anybody actually bring up Johnny Carson. Oh, really? Oh. Uh, other than uh, Patrick Verone, who's a wonderful dude who was on, and he was talking about Woody Allen, but he, he wrote for Johnny Carson in his last couple of years. Oh my God. Yeah. Oh my God. I mean, that's just that's just one of the many, I mean, he's written for Futurama and, and and just a million other things, but when I heard Johnny Carson, I was just like, I just about shit myself. Oh. But I mean, even towards the end, it doesn't doesn't matter. Did you? So were you up late watching that? I mean, your parents let you sit and watch. Yes. I would
1: every (laughs) every night. Here was my routine. I had a black and white television set in my bedroom. Mm -hmm. So whatever prime time TV would go to ten, and Mm -hmm. getting from ten to eleven was the hardest because it was you're straight into syndication and it's mostly news. Mm -hmm. But so usually I'd watch the Merv Griffin show to pass the time. But Mm -hmm. at eleven o'clock. Channel 9 or 11 would run Carson Comedy Classics, which was a half hour of just Carson sketches, usually from like the 60s, 70s. And, oh, God, I love that. And then at 1130 or 1135, Carson would start. Yeah. And then Letterman. And, yeah, like, so right. if I could get to 11 p.m., especially in the summers, I would just stay up all night. And I remember I had this weird radio that could get TV audio. Mm-hmm. And so wherever I'd drive at night, I would listen to Letterman. That's awesome. Or Carson or whatever, too. I, I wasn't driving, I think. Well, Carson went off in, in
0: 91, right? Is that right? 91 or 92. So, I yeah. exactly. I was, I was mostly His listening to Letterman with, at that point Cheers end, so I can never remember which is which. Yeah. So for you, well, that's funny though to listen to funny Johnny Carson sketches and, but to listen to them, to not be watching them.
1: Yeah, because I also I was so into drawing, so I I'd have it on TV too, uh-huh. and I wouldn't always watch. I was just always had it on mm-hmm. and it would be like zeroed in on my paper or whatever yeah so yeah I think I heard a lot more TV than I ever watched
0: that's so cool just yeah. to get out just to be absorbing some you know your biggest influences and at the same time being being able to create at the exact same time that you're listening yeah you know which i mean now we treat that like that's some amazing feat that we can do 10 things on a computer but let's right. a, <laughs> a sketch pad and a pencil and a tv in the background is not too bad
1: no in fact right before i came over here i was listening to the final ripoff and i was doing some graphics for super ego and computer and just
0: mm-hmm.
1: i am actually really happy with that like total split of my brain something Mm -hmm. where i'm intaking and outputting at the same time it feels like some kind of weird balance
0: are you doing anything like that when you when you record the the show or is it i mean i mean you there are so many resources you have to use if you're acting and doing improv i understand that but is there anything else like are you thinking about the editing as you're doing it yeah i
1: naturally am i think and uh i'm never happier when Something starts off and you're like, God, oh, this is gonna edit so well. I can mm-hmm. hear right away how this edits, and there are some that are like, you know, especially if we have a guest in that we really like, mm-hmm. but say the sketch is only kind of middle of the road, then I feel a great pressure to make the edit stronger. Mm-hmm. Um, but it is funny, like when we are recording, we have our things that we don't even know we're doing subconsciously, like jeremy tends to get really physical Like he inhabits his characters in a physicality way that i wish the listeners could see because he's so expressive and so funny yeah when he plays shunt mcgup his country western character he does on there he has a guitar and he's playing it and he's got a like half smoked cigarette in the neck of the guitar that he takes out and he'll tune the keys and he puts it back in so good all of my characters i tend to rub my belly i don't know what that means <laughs> Yeah.
0: Yeah. yeah, even HR eager because I gotta admit that is my favorite thing I've ever heard. <laughs> Holy you. shit.
1: I try to think what I do with him. I do a face with him where I have to make like a blank stares <laughs> and just start to freeze a, a, an upside down frown. I will not call it a smile. It is against my religion. Sounding. Yeah. It's
0: so upsetting. <laughs> that is why it's so funny though. Like just that voice is just so a cryptically upsetting and I can't t- I couldn't tell you why at that's all. Just that's Something the, that was
1: the tired version of it
0: that's, that's, <laughs> that's okay oh boy um,
1: I've never when he died recently
0: yeah.
1: I have never gotten more um, what's the word like response on Twitter I didn't even put any I think I put something up later in the day but mm-hmm. before that even happened everybody was tweeting at me like I'm so sorry for your loss my <gasps> condolences uh-huh. and I, I would have to think like because he was never an online figure mm-hmm. or his family wasn't, all of these things were coming at me because I'm the only other conduit people know, like, it's who are you going to go to, Ridley Scott? It's true. And I felt <laughs> somehow horrible, like, how can I pass these things on to him? Because I, it's so weird that I should get this, like, people shouldn't be thinking <laughs> of me on the guy's death. Like, think of right. the guy. I was very flattered, but sure. it was surreal. I. That's one of those things where, you know, like, Social media changes things immensely, mm-hmm. and I can only think what's going to happen when Gary Marshall dies, and what the stuff that Paul F. Tompkins I is going to get. Because he, you know, I'm barely on this radar, and if I got all that Giger love, he's mm-hmm. going to get.
0: That's so true. Yeah, it's it, it, it like you said it's it's complimentary, of course, but it, it's also one of these. Uh, sure.
3: No, no,
1: you can okay. keep going. Okay, I'm no, I think it, my it, no, no, phone's like I don't even have a call. It's just
0: acting crazy. Yeah. <laughs> Rub its okay. belly. That might help. Um, it's it's a, it's an interesting compliment. But as you say, you are the only conduit. While that doesn't make you responsible, I think it's this. I don't know. I. I I don't know. It's this weird thing where you're you're already kind of passing it on by continuing to do the voice and <laughs> playing it on the comedy bang bang episode you did the other day, uh, a couple of weeks ago. I mean that that's like this perfect sort of tribute. The same way James Adomian did his tribute to Hugh Huelha- Yeah. ghost came back. I, I they're super sweet. Oh, that's like, good. You to can know. say the most ridiculous shit and like obscene, but you're doing it obscene in a character, and you're trying to play off of who what we thought of this person. Yeah. And I find that kind of interesting, especially yeah.
1: for a guy who made his existence about death. Yeah. Like, I think he's... There's no Too Soon with H.R. Giger. Right. And we put out these um, Nerdist animated versions of some mm-hmm. of our superego sketches and that went up not long after mm-hmm. his death and all the YouTube people. Too Soon. I, I was such bad taste. Oh, come on. Are you kidding? Come on. It's H.R. Giger. Like, he... I don't. I don't want to say he wanted to die, but right. the, if ever there was someone equipped to walk down the shadow of the Valley of Death, it's H.R. Mm-hmm. Giger, and, yeah. and God bless him for it. He's probably happier. Yeah,
0: <laughs> yeah. Well, that's the thing. Is like, I mean, they say imitation is the sincerest form form of flattery for a very good reason. Yeah, um, and it's very positive. I think, like,
1: and I truly love the guy. I really yeah. do. I and I love. I mean, his art is twisted, but mm-hmm. it's amazing and visionary and mm-hmm. alien to this day gives me nightmares i love that the xenomorph character is incredible so i have nothing but respect and admiration for the guy and an appreciation for how weird he was yeah, yeah.
3: Of, cu- of course there is no such thing as a bloody cat license yes there is no there isn't is isn't our got one look what's that then this is a dog license with the word dog crossed out and cat written in in crayon Man didn't have the right form. What man? The man from the cat detector van. The loony detector van, you mean? No, it's people like you what cause unrest. What cat detector van? The cat detector van from the Ministry of Owsinge. Owsinge? It was spelt like that on the van. I'm very observant. i never seen so many bleeding aerials. The man said their equipment could pinpoint a purr at 400 yards, and Eric, being such a happy cat, was a piece of cake. How much did you pay for this? Uh sixty quid and eight for the fruit bat. What fruit bat? Eric the fruit bat. Oh, your pet's called Eric. There's nothing so odd about that Kemal Ataturk and an entire menagerie called Abdal. No, he didn't. Did. Didn't. Did, 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 didn't, did. Oh, right. Spoke like a gentleman, sir. Now, are you going to give me a fish licence? I promise you that there is no such thing. You don't need one. In that case, give me a bee licence. A license for your pet bee? Correct. Called Eric. Eric the B? Nope. No? No. Eric the half bee. He had an accident. You're off your chum. Look, if you intend by that utilization of an obscure colloquialism to imply that my sanity is not up to scratch, or indeed to deny the semi-existence of my little chum, Eric the half bee, I shall have to ask you to listen to this. Take it away, Eric the orchestra leader. And it's actually
0: one of those things where if somebody didn't know who H.R. Giger was... Uh, and also didn't know to pronounce his name Geiger because I didn't. Um, I didn't either until this. Yeah, I thought that, it was Geiger, really? okay.
1: and I thought it had an e in it. But it, yeah. Oh, you're
0: right. Yeah. yeah, yeah, But it's it's one of those. It's not dissimilar to what happens on the Monty Python, Python album or in any other stuff. Where, like you say, you don't know what it is. You probably laugh at it if somebody else is laughing at it, or if it's said in the right way. But it's one of those things that will stick with you, and eventually, yeah, somebody might look up H.R. Geiger and, and you know if they don't know who he is, yeah. Or don't, necessarily care at first Uh,
1: well you do well to do it because I tell you what whatever the impression is I do it's not as weird or as fascinating or as entertaining as the real man Mm -hmm. just YouTube him and especially when he's I I realized I was watching Jodorowsky's Dune that documentary Mm -hmm. two days ago and they interview him and he's much older so he has a way different voice than what I do Mm -hmm. mine is like the younger Giger Mm -hmm. Uh, but I gotta work on that older one Mm -hmm. but if you look at some of those older interviews with him do you want me to tell you an interesting story yes uh the guy that produced the um nerdist animations for us who's Mm -hmm. this wonderful talented guy named mark miller works in the horror community and he had a director friend i can't remember what he directed but he's well-known enough horror movie and he said that he stayed at giger's house and giger was showing him some paintings he had up in his whatever his he lives in switzerland it must be a chalet Mm -hmm. whatever the um like underworld version of a chalet is (laughs) Uh, where it's just black snow on the roof right Uh, and this guy was walking along looking at his paintings on the wall and he goes oh Giger this one's got some holes in it he goes that is where my girlfriend killed herself (laughs) And he left it up, and I think she shot herself in the, oh, the like, the bullet holes are still in the painting. God, that's, the, I mean, that's a, I guess that's a second-degree story at this point, but uh, I have no reason to doubt it. I oh mean, it my. certainly fits with it. <laughs> Holy shit. I hope, it's, I don't know if it's true, but oh, it don't. does lend credence to the it, legend. It really does. Yeah.
0: Oh, my goodness gracious. That's. Again, uh, on many levels, that's one of the reasons why the voice is so upsetting, because <laughs> you, you sort of, especially when you find out that the kind of stuff is real. Yeah. Um, oh, my goodness. Um, do you, actually, let me ask you, who the fuck is Cyril Connolly? Because I never looked He's him up. Like He's
1: an English writer and intellectual and, and, and like, critic. Okay, and that's all I can tell you. Other than I know when I when his name popped up, I was like, "Oh, that's what he is." Mm-hmm. Okay, I couldn't tell you anything about what he writes. And I don't
0: thing. think it matters. I think it just matters that there's a name that sounds like semi-carnal.
1: Yeah, I know. know. <laughs> oh God.
0: Um, are you musical at all?
1: Yeah. Um, we for Super Ego we put out an album of fake country western music from the seventies, <laughs> and all of us have such an appreciation for that. And Mark is especially like really talented. Mm-hmm. And, um, I've. I guess I've played guitar and banjo for about twenty plus years or something, and I love writing songs. Mm-hmm. And Jeremy's really good too. Jeremy has like this incredible natural music ability, and um, he's sort of getting really good at guitar, but he picked it up later. But he has this ability because this guy we work with, our good friend James Bladen, does a lot of music work with us for mm-hmm. Super Ego, and so on certain shunt things, he'll Jeremy will improvise a cappella. And then James will go back in and retrofit music, and sometimes we will like I'll go over there and we'll choose the arrangements together. But he's this guy that goes in and figures this stuff out. And so we've done it in occasion with Shunt and Paul F. Tompkins as Andrew Lloyd Webber, mm-hmm. Shunt mm-hmm. and James Urbaniak as uh, um, David Bowie, <laughs> Shunt and Sam Elliott, uh, Shunt and uh, There's a There's a one in the can right now that i can't even talk about that i'm so excited right. about. but he says to like all the guests and everything he has to really figure it out and change things but jeremy just naturally sings in the key of g mm-hmm. and he like everything he does just fits right into music and so he, jeremy really does this have this ability to like without even thinking exhibit country western music it's amazing mm-hmm. yeah so we we love doing music and playing music and stuff
0: well, it's not atypical to talk about the link between you know rhythm, etc., in music and in comedy. I mean, do you has has knowing one made the other easier?
1: Boy, music came along later for me, so okay. it was a really tough path for me. I could always you know kind of goof around on stage and and um, do improv, and mm-hmm. uh, I always had a knack for drawing, but music was a real long haul for me. Really? <laughs> yeah, of all things, too, it was the rhythm. And yeah. I don't know why. Um, I, I felt like songwriting came pretty naturally to me because I really loved the creative process of, it, of mm-hmm. it. But the mechanics of rhythm and and notes and harmonies, oh, it took me so long to get. Yeah. I mean, I, I'm sort of glad I'm the age I am now because I had such a desire to do music for a good 10 years where I just
0: couldn't. Couldn't do it. Yeah. yeah.
1: And that was frustrating for me because I always sort of had a... a capacity for certain things whatever it was that i was interested in creatively i could find a made to, a way to make it work but with music i just <laughs> couldn't and it it would it would bum me out.
0: no i, I completely understand that <laughs> i can barely play guitar and it's it's upsetting every time i try <laughs> but i enjoy doing it yeah you know? uh did you as a kid when or when you whenever you were first writing or performing sketches can you think back was there ever a sketch you did or wrote that sort of you were like, upon looking back, is obviously how oh, I stole this from here or something because oh, yeah. I remember doing that a lot when I was a kid. I know a lot of my early sketches were just oh god, here's, a, sure. here's a Monty Python sketch.
1: There's got to be. I um, uh,
0: that's
1: well. I do. I knew that there was one line I said in a Super Ego sketch, and then not long after was watching a Mr. Show sketch, and the same exact line was in Mr. Show. Really? Well, it was just referencing an absurd concept of rather than Aunt Jemima, it's Uncle Jemima. And I thought, oh, I, I oh. my humor is so bad sometimes that all I have to do is think, what's the opposite of this? That'll be <laughs> funny. And I just said that, and then I realized that's straight out of Mr. Show, and mm-hmm. God only knows. I mean, I, I don't think I stole it, but it could have been in my subconscious too. But I'm thinking conceptually, there has to be. I know there is. Oh, <laughs> I, remember, I was in a play in high school called Scopino, and it was this, like... 70s adaptation of a Moliere play mm-hmm. set in Naples, Italy. And at the time, Dana Carvey was big on Saturday Night Live, and my theater teacher in high school was this wonderful but very lazy man. And he mm-hmm. goes, uh, Just Matt, uh, sh- just uh, sh-. he'd always say "shh" for no reason, too, because <laughs> he's so used to the class being rowdy. So, Matt, uh, uh, during this monologue, uh, just do some of that George D- uh, Bush. You know, George Bush Sr., like Dana Carvey stuff in there. Oh, my God. And so in the middle of this play, I'd be up on a balcony doing this monologue and then go break into (laughs) that or like, uh, we're going to pump you up. (laughs) And the audience ate it up and it taught me all the wrong... Of course. All the wrong (laughs) ideas. It took me a while to to realize how bad that was.
0: Did you... But I'm curious though, for you, where where does the inner rebellion come from? When you're like, oh fuck, no, 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 I'm doing this all the wrong way. Did was it a slow progression, or did something oh, like an audience reaction just hit you one day? You're like, oh no, because
1: if anything, you get
0: you get more. Yeah, you get with the right you uh, get wrong supported audience. by that. Yeah. yeah,
1: I think it was um, maybe what a lot of young men go through with this period of like two too discerning for everything so like your music (laughs) tastes get refined sure but they get all like ultimately too pretentious right so and and also that's all relative because i remember going from like um i'm not gonna listen to van halen anymore i'm gonna listen to counting crows you know (laughs) and uh (laughs) i think the same thing happened with my comedy where i got i started to realize that saturday night live was you know at the time starting to become a pandering thing Mm -hmm. um and i think Monty python probably had a lot to do with that where right. i i just i looked at the difference between the two and went, wow this is vast and um and i think i took it upon myself to just cuz it was also at the same time when i was asking a lot of questions cuz i had just gone to college and i was raised in a really suburban middle class great lifestyle mm-hmm. but like i don't think i'd ever had a bagel growing up you yeah. know what i mean yeah. and so i i was suddenly realizing like oh politically there's other things out there yeah. and culturally, and I think I need to start asking some questions and so that informed comedy, comedy informed that, mm-hmm. and it was like a wonderful feedback loop that just opened my eyes to things And It's yeah.
0: interesting though how you need that energy and that intensity of you know, teenager, early 20-something to maybe middle 20-something to maybe a little later than that to sort of, eventually you get to calm down a little bit, Yeah, but some of those spikes are still in there yeah. and you hope that they're again informing what you keep doing, you know, the, the comedy muscle. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, is, I guess it's hard with improv, but is there ever the temptation to go out of your way to be not inflammatory, but just to, to, to say something, <laughs> you know I mean? Is you that
1: mean like, uh, controversial towards the audience? Like
0: I mean, not even that, but to make a point to try and be socially important. Oh do you still... yeah,
1: I think so. Yeah. I think there's a, Place for that. I mean, yeah. I think it's just got to feel right. Yeah. I mean, there is no shortage of like religion sketches on superego, yeah. and that's no accident. And sure. it's and it honestly isn't because we're trying to make a point, it's because Jeremy and I, especially, and him more so than me, well, he was r- raised in a heavily Christian household, sure. And I, my family became really christian but later in life okay and yep. so it hits us in both different ways where i like i felt the sh- the nosebleed shock of wait what's going on here yeah and he feels the like comprehensive yeah n- numbness of a lifetime of it and so we uh, we don't bond over something more than our our um what is it? our our uh like curiosity with what makes heavily religious like organized religion work and so mm-hmm. often when we're done recording we turn on trinity broadcasting network mm-hmm. and we just sit and we watch <laughs> and we eat it up it's like what I imagine other people do with sports yeah and so <laughs> there's definitely i think the um the if there's any social commentary in that it's secondary and we're happy with it mm-hmm. but it really comes from we we love to try to pick apart what makes that world work and mm-hmm. you know nobody's a stranger to Televangelists swindling their flock, or preachers having an affair, but we we always share this sense of both disbelief and absolute assumption when something like that happens. Like when Ted Haggard has his thing, Mm -hmm. I'm I don't know how my psyche can be fifty percent going of course that happens and 50% going, I can't believe this is still happening and nowhere in the middle. And to me, that's some of the most interesting stuff when your brain can be split down the middle Mm -hmm. like that. I just, I just love it. I I love that kind of duplicity and, and and it's, (laughs) it's potentially in everybody. Yeah. And so I think I love to watch it from afar and hope that I learn from it. You know,
0: (laughs) do you, okay. I always like to ask people towards the end, if they, if you haven't ever heard of Monty Python, or let's just say if you haven't heard this album uh-huh. what's a good reason to listen to this to sit down and give up an hour and a half of your life to mm. listen to it I think it's worth it
1: oh I I have no doubt it's worth it I'm trying that ah, there seems like there's so many reasons I'm trying to think of it from coming from it out of the blue what mm-hmm. what you'll take from it the other thing is I listen to it as you sent it to me, Mm because I haven't had it for a while. Mm -hmm. So it wasn't in the track order of the original thing. No, that's okay. I knew exactly what connected to what and everything. But I'm trying to think. I think Eric the Hafferby comes up early. Mm -hmm. And I think I don't know that I have a good reason for it, but I would say that is the one that makes me so happy. So give it a listen. Because also, it's a brilliant, funny, likable sketch that also goes into an incredibly catchy, happy Mm -hmm. little tune that...
0: I just love that song. Ministry of Housing.
1: (laughs) is spelled like that on the band. See, (laughs) it's so quotable. Cat detective.
0: (laughs) (laughs) The Loony detective. You mean? Sorry, I could do this all day. See, when we did when we did a live episode of of uh, Monty Python um, a Monty Python album, we all broke out into the philosopher's song at the very end, which was uh, you know it's kind of irresistible. You can't
1: not. Yeah. Oh We're
0: all a bunch of it was me, Dave Higgins, and James Urbaniak, and my other buddies, and all of us were just like. Instinctively. Yeah, I got
1: libraries. God, I've even mentioned my friend Jeff Davis that I talked about on here mm-hmm. works with Eric Idle and he performed that song with him at the um oh. Festival Supreme. Like Jeez. he's the go to guy that Eric Idol does stuff really? with. Yeah. Son of a bitch. Yeah, uh, I know. I oh know. my god. Yeah. That's amazing. So he's he's performed that song, I don't know, a few times with him. Yeah. That's, that's incredible. <laughs>
0: um well first of all thank you for doing this
1: thanks jason it was super fun to talk okay. about really yeah.
0: um and obviously you're welcome back anytime anytime that's the yeah. pressure i I'll, put at the end of the episode we'll have
1: to talk andrew dice clay oh i would God. be curious oh to go through God. that again which one was it again I, it's the live double album i i want to say it's like the met or carnegie hall it's okay. some sellout thing he did we've
0: done dice once before but i don't know if it was either of those mm. so um and while they're painful to listen to they're always still fun to they're, yeah. they're interesting to me because yeah. i didn't grow up with them so it's oh, like yeah
1: just like for the social commentary it'd be pretty fascinating to hear it again i mm-hmm. should listen to it again
0: um where can people find you
1: uh let's see uh matt gorley at matt gorley on twitter m-a-t-t-g-o-u-r-l-e-y uh go superego.com and superego on itunes um i also do the james bonding podcast with matt myra mm-hmm. And I did the Andy Daly podcast on Earwolf with Andy Daly. And I think that's good enough for now, right? <laughs> <laughs> Boy, I really do podcasts. So. Are there
0: going to be more Andy Daly?
1: I think there's a good chance of it. Oh, I've had a talk God. with, uh, oh, I, I think so. there's a good chance, maybe around the new year. I really hope I, so. I sure hope so, too. He's, was insane. he's one of my absolute favorites. So,
0: um, Well, thank you again. My pleasure. Everybody, thank you for listening. And as always, have a good thing. <laughs> Thank you.
3: One, two, three, four. Half a bee, philosophically, must ipso facto half not be. But half the bee has got to be a vis-à-vis its entity. Do you see? But can a bee be said to be or not to be an entire bee... When half the bee is not a bee, due to some ancient injury. Singing. La-dee-dee, one, two, three, Eric the half a bee. A, B, C, D, E, F, G, Eric the half a bee. Is this a wretched demi-bee Half asleep upon my knee Some freak from a menagerie? No, it's Eric the half-a-bee A fiddly-dum, a fiddly dum a fiddly dee. Eric the half-a-bee Ho, 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 tee-hee-hee Eric the half-a-bee I love this hive employee, bisected accidentally one summer afternoon by me. I love him carnally. He loves him carnally, semi-carnally. The end. Cyril Connolly? No, semi-carnally. Oh. Cyril Connolly